Black Terms Podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for tapping in with us. This is our fourth episode, um, Mass Incarceration and Reentry Today. Today, we'll be having a very special guest, Dr. Stanley Andrews, an assistant professor at the College of Medicine at Howard University, as well as founder and ED of prisons, uh, Prison Cells to PhD. So I've said this before, and I'll say it in ga- again in case y'all forgot, On Black Terms is brought to you by Tandem Ed, where we are living, learning, and leading alongside community. Tandem Ed is a consulting organization that exists as a healthy bridge between community and institutions. So I am Dr. Narelle Edwards, Director of Communications and Creative Content at Tandem Ed. And I'm co-hosting today's episodes with the lovely Dr. Brian C.B. Barnes, founder and CEO of Tandem Ed, as well as Jason Rivers, our Managing Director of Services and National Director of Tandem Ed's signature program, Own Your Story. Um, and so I'd love to start off with um, Dr. Stanley Andres, if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself, go ahead. Thank you, thank you. And uh, it is with great appreciation, honor, and, and privilege that I that I sit here amongst you all. It's, it's just so incredible as you just list off the names and titles of just the folks on the call here. Um, I am just, you know, being a professor at a, a historically black college and university such as Howard University, um, I just love being in the presence of, uh, of excellence and, and black excellence. And it's just, you know, listing off your titles is, is quite impressive and, and honored to be in the space. So uh, a little bit about me. Um, so as was kind of mentioned, um, I'm at Howard University, an assistant professor uh, at the College of Medicine. Um, my path to academia was quite different than um, my other colleagues, uh, along with some of the um, act, you know, titles and that, that you just mentioned. Um, I'm really here speaking to you as a formerly incarcerated person uh, with multiple felony convictions who was sentenced to 10 years in prison as a prior and persistent career criminal. Uh, in my early 20s, um, I had a prosecutor telling me uh, that I had no hope for changing the decisions that I had been making up until that time. Um, fast forward some time through prison, which I'll you know surely talk a little bit about. Um, I am now Dr. Stanley Andres, an endocrinologist, a scientist, a professor at Howard University College of Medicine, um, formerly uh, I was at Johns Hopkins University uh, uh, Medical School for some time. Um, and additionally, uh, I'm just coming back from a summer sabbatical uh, where I added to some titles and, and accolades as I was uh, a visiting professor at um, the Imperial, Imperial College of London, which is kind of uh, one of the Ivy League caliber schools over in UK. So. Uh, I would say that the prosecutor's uh, prophecy of me being this uh, dangerous threat, this person that was gonna be forever locked in this uh, cycle of incarceration was not quite accurate, you know, compared to what my story actually played out to be. Wow, that is, uh, your story is really impressive. And I mean, kudos to you and all that you've achieved and even that you continue to achieve, especially the work that you're doing uh, for uh, formerly incarcerated and incarcerated folks and sort of creating that pipeline with your nonprofit. And so one of the very first questions I wanted to ask you, you know, we've crossed paths a little bit in the like DMV area criminal justice reform spaces. I've gone to a couple of Unlock Higher Ed Coalition meetings. And I really kind of wanted to know your opinion on the direction our country is taking with mass incarceration. It seems like there's a momentum 
important towards positive change, right? You know, we've had the uh, Pell Grant ban lifted so that um, infar- incarcerated students can now access uh, Pell Grants. The pandemic right. has exposed, especially exposed how egregious conditions are for prisoners, such that some were granted early release through the First Step Act. Um, Republicans are even starting to talk more about getting on board with prison reform, right? And so I'm kind of curious around your synopsis of where the U.S. is with mass incarceration um, and the way the public dialogue around incarceration has perhaps changed, especially for you from the time you were um, incarcerated? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would say that the, the landscape has certainly changed, you know, significantly from the time that, you know, I was incarcerated and, you know, going through, um, you know, the height of my going through my involvement with the legal system, um, which was very much in line with the height of the war on drugs in terms of it wasn't too long after the 1994 Clinton crime bill, which as you mentioned, uh, you know, Pell Restoration being a huge, huge accomplishment that unlock higher ed and uh, uh, from prison cells, a PhD, my nonprofit um, were, were, you know, a big part of. Um, but back in, you know, 94, after the height of the, the war on, on drugs, um, the major thing that the country was pushing and politicians were pushing were these tough on crime policies, were these, uh, you know, longer prison sentences, you know, prison sentences for folks. That, that's that's not new information, I would imagine, for some of the folks uh, that may be tuning in. Um, and as of recent, as you mentioned, there are some, you know, real changes in the way both sides of the aisle are viewing things. Because even back in the height of the war on drugs, it was both sides of the aisle. You know, Clinton, by no surprise to anyone, was of course a Democrat, but um, yet he was the one that had one of the toughest laws uh, on, on criminal justice reform. And, and so it's kind of taken a similar trend where as it's both sides that want to see this change. And you mentioned the first step back, you mentioned Pell restoration. Um, these are all big steps forward. Um, and there are some caveats that, you know, I think that's what you kind of are mentioning for me to to, to talk a little bit about. Um, I, I really, you know, I, we're working with a lot of uh, politicians, both on the state level and federal level. And there is a lot of, you know, different views from both sides of the aisle. But I also think that there's still just not quite um, this understanding of the prison experience and people that are entangled in, in the legal system, and primarily uh, a lack of understanding the Black experience as it, you know, pertains to Black individuals who are uh, moving through the system. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that our organization really does is work to change the narrative, work to uh, really push forward stories like myself and others that have taken um, courageous steps forward in, in trying to not forget their past or throw their past away, but incorporate their full self of who they are into their future and who they're becoming and who they will be. Um, and I, I don't think that we're quite to the point where society truly believes in transformative change. And and you know that that's you know that's the caveat. I think. 
there definitely has been this reverse on tough on crime, you know, lock them up for very long periods of time. There's there's, there's changes being made to that, uh, specifically for, you know, um, drug offenses, lower level drug offenses. Uh, but we're still not at the point of truly believing in change is the problem. Um, I think that, you know, we just don't really, there's this idea that uh, there's good people and there's bad people. And bad people will always be bad people. There's no way to reform. There's no way to change. Um, and, and that is, you know, something that I talk about uh, in my book that I'll, you know, share a little bit about here in, in a little bit, hopefully. But this idea that we need to move to this place of believing in true change and the, the idea that education can, can really be uh, a, a, an agent of transformative change. Thank you. I wonder if Brian or Jason, you want to jump in with any questions related to some of what Stanley and Juice talked about. I have I have a question. I, I want to see the book. Let's 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 go and get the book out. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I have the I could of course share uh, my screen and pull up like Amazon or something like this, but. Uh, this is the physical copy. We, you know, yeah. I just got it in the mail um, just last week, uh, a couple weeks ago uh, when I got it. But others just got it in the mail last week as it just became uh, available August 17th. So, you know, not even a full week of uh, folks being available. And it's it's kind of just uh, very humbling. You know, I've been getting a lot of messages on social media and whatnot of folks, you know, posting that they got the books and holding holding the books in their hand. And, and you know, folks, you know, it's not even been a week yet and I'm getting folks that said that they've read through the whole book already. Uh, I'm a little bit of a slower reader, so I don't, you know, but I'm also an audio book reader for that reason. And you can you can get it an audio book as well, but it's, it's really incredible um, to have that the reception that it's getting and, and this idea of what I just mentioned this you know the book is titled from prison cells to PhD it's never too late to do good um, it's never too late to do good is a phrase that my father used to tell me uh, you know my um, my father unfortunately passed away um, and you know uh, it was very much the interactions that I had with him that really um, helped push me into the career path that I'm in now. Uh, but, you know, the, the, in, in regards to the title of the book, um, it was, you know, my family is uh, Haitian. That's, that's actually, I, I was just telling the folks on the call here uh, that I was in Paris after I was in, in London for, for two months. And the reason I have family in Paris is, you know, us being Haitian, uh, there's a strong French influence. So part of my family moved to Paris in France and then you know part of the family my dad included moved to the states um, but growing up I would speak you know we'd speak Haitian Creole and French interchangeably and uh, my dad used to tell you know the phrase that my dad used to tell me was uh, um, which is uh, uh, you know the Haitian Creole uh, translate it doesn't quite translate you know there's a lot of words and languages that don't have exact translations the meaning that he was kind of referring to was you know as i was selling drugs and getting into trouble and you know I, I had been entangled in the legal system you know starting at the age of 14 
Um, and, you know, so he had been, there's been several conversations that he had been uh, telling me that, you know, it's never too late to reach your full potential. Uh, it's never too late to start doing good. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I've unfortunately was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And um, during, you know, the earlier parts of that time, my dad, uh, his health kind of severely plummeted. And um, through the number of hospitalizations and uh, surgeries and amputations, he ended up losing his battle with type two diabetes before I had the opportunity to reconnect with them and also to let him know that I began to understand this concept that he was trying to tell to me where, you know, it, interestingly, um, I, I often get asked by folks like, what would you tell the younger you or, you know, what can we do to help people in, you know, that grow up in situations like you did? You know, I grew up in, in Ferguson, Missouri. And, you know, what I what I tell folks is that there's, you know, there's no silver bullet is what folks are looking for. Um, and and the, the, the true closest thing to a silver bullet is that we need to have patience. Um, and, you know, I could tell, I could have told my younger self to be patient. Um, how helpful that would have been, I don't really know. But more so, uh, I think it's telling the authorities and adults around that young person to be patient because uh, studies and science tells us that the brain is not fully developed until a person enters you know, their mid twenties. Um, and, and data also shows us that crime severely, severely drops once a person hits their mid twenties. So if we can get people to that point where their brain is literally thinking differently, um, we can you know, help them really continue their lives in a, in, a, in a fruitful way instead of being locked in a cage. Um, and, and you know, my dad's comment to me was this idea that, you know, we're, ne we're not gonna give up on you. You know, it's never too late to, to do good. It's never too late to reach your full potential. When you are ready to make the change, know that I will be here waiting for you and ready for you and, and wanting to hold your hand and be there with you. And unfortunately, um, you know, he wasn't quite physically there for me, but, you know, certainly he's been there uh, emotionally and spiritually for me. Well, pre I mean, pre appreciate appreciate you sharing the book, man. The, uh, I know the content is amazing. The cover is even amazing. Uh, and so look, looking forward to, to diving into it. I have, I have a question. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed and, um, you know, just honored to be on this call with you, your, your path. Uh, what you're doing now and 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 and, and all that you've accomplished uh, i'm wondering about you know this this narrative of what constitutes success um and how that um plays into this conversation about you know when a person um is deemed by society um as being good or successful you know because um, this person, you know, like yourself or, or like myself, you, you know, you go on higher, higher education, you know, higher degrees, doctors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we also know there are, there, are, there are other paths, right? And there are paths that also agitate the system that we would say are successful, but maybe they wouldn't like it as much. So I'm just curious about as you, as, as you think about, you know, um, you know, changing the narrative and changing the story, what are the multiple pathways that can look like for what success looks like for our people that may or may not be 
in line with or uh, stamped or approved by society or particularly yeah. white society? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, to to phrase it in a way that we phrase it within the organization, uh, you know, our mission statement for the organization Prisons of Professionals um, is that we seek to help people excel beyond what society and life circumstances has set to be the norm. And what we want to help people do, um, you know, in this idea of prison to professionals, this idea of going from this place of desolate despair uh, and hopelessness to a place of prosperity, self-value and self-work. So you know, what we see as success uh, is self-value and self-worth. So we wanna help people get to this place of feeling like they have purpose, feeling like they have value and, and feeling like they have worth. Um, and that looks completely different for every single person. It looks different for everyone on this, on this call, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, when you frame it in that way, it's not about getting education. It's not about getting a degree. It's not about getting any type of certificates. It's not even about jobs or working. It's about contributing to the world in the way that you feel that you were put on this planet to do. Um, and that's what we want to help people. That, that's what we help people do within the organization is find their self-value and self-worth. And one of the reasons that we wanted to focus on that, you know, a story that I always share um, is, you know, when I was in that courtroom in my early 20s and I had this prosecutor, this white lady um, telling me that I was this dangerous threat to society, that I wasn't going to amount to anything, that I was going to be in this revolving door of incarceration. Um, I very much believed all of that. I went into incarceration, you know, almost looking to fulfill this prophecy that she laid out for me uh, because I thought it was the only thing that was available to me. Um, and, you know, more to that, like she was pushing for life in prison. Uh, I got hit with, you know, I had three separate felony convictions. And so I got hit with Missouri's three strikes law. And she was pushing for life in prison because she painted this picture of me being this, you know, person that was irreparable. Um, and the judge sentenced me to 10 years and her eyes was granting me mercy. Um, so in this idea that she's like, oh, I'm granting you mercy. So, you know, right as the sentence got, uh, you know, you know, she meant, you know, she, she says the sentence, uh, I'm kind of in this like out of body feeling and it takes me a second to, to come back to. And the first thing that I mentioned is, you know, can I go hug my mother who at this point was you know bawling in the back of the in the, in the back of the courtroom um and the judge denied me the opportunity to go give my hug my, my mother one last hug before i went off to serve my sentence and and you know what that began to, you know what i was what i was learning at that moment was the system no longer sees me as a human being as a person someone who deserves respect and civility I am an animal, a caged animal in their in their eyes. And so much of incarceration was just daily repetitions of the system, the people in the system, both the incarcerated people, because they've been conditioned to feel that way, and the correctional officers kind of devaluing you and saying that you're not human, that you're more of an animal. So, you know, it, this idea of self-worth and self-value is like at the central being of what we do.
because for so long in people's lives who've been through the system, they've been told that they're subhuman, non-human, and, and we need to change that. We need them to see their true value and, and, and their humanity. Uh, you know, thank you, man, for, um, for sharing. Uh, I wanted to say, you know, my condolences, our condolences for, you know, the passing of your father. Um, and then, you know, learning about you a little bit, um, you know, your pathways, you know, uh, Brian B talked about this pathways concept. Um, the relationship that you've had with uh, learning, you know, education um, through the traditional track, um, even as you carried that uh, and persisted through your time uh, incarcerated. Um, and you said something that really stuck with me and in, in something that I was kind of looking up. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, like in all the things that you've accomplished, which is phenomenal, um, this potential always existed within you. Um, and what was nurtured, um, <clears throat> you know, what was nurtured, um, and I think I understand that your father passed away when you were incarcerated. Um, and when you think about the track that you're on now, this pathway, you know, not only as a professor, as an author, um, you know, studying science the way that you have as a doctor um, and scientist, can you talk a little bit about that moment when, so why you decided to go the route that you went and that like that aha moment, that light bulb moment for you um, after learning about the passing of your father um, and those that you took. Uh, you know, I, I remember reading something about you um, reading your first scientific article while incarcerated. So uh, if you could just talk a little bit about that and then I, I have a follow-up question yeah, too. And I think that um, it's worthy to take it back to uh, my childhood just a little bit. So, you know, I, I mentioned that I'm from the Ferguson, Missouri area, and um, I started selling drugs before I was even a teenager, got involved with the system, as I mentioned, for the, you know, arrested for the first time at, at 14 years old. And um, I was criminalized even before that time of being arrested for that first time at 14. Um, throughout junior high and you know even in elementary school I was just constantly in detention suspension in high school I almost got uh, expelled because I had so many out of school and in school suspensions and detention and so my my teachers have been criminalizing me even before I got into the system and so I had had this idea that I was a criminal for you know some time that's what society culture so many things were telling me that um, that you know that stamp that the prosecutor actually put that I was this career criminal it only had been making sense for some time now so going into prison I say all that to say because going into prison it was already years of feeling as if I was this was all that there was for me really um, and I you know I had to work to peel all that back, which is why I said that our organization, that's one of the central things, because we know that we need to peel that back to get them back to their humanity. But for me, that aha moment was, you know, the combination of almost immediately when I went away, my father's health began to plummet and he, he had been patiently trying to pull me back for some time. And I had just been, you know, un you know, my brain wasn't fully developed yet, right? I, I was unable to fully understand that. And so I held 
a large amount of guilt that, you know, my father who appeared, he had diabetes before I went away, but um, it just like went on this crazy, very detrimental path right when I went away. And I felt that that was my fault. I felt that it was because of me and the grief of me being, you know, I'm the last of five, uh, that, you know, the pain that I was bringing to him and the family accelerated, you know, his condition. Um, so dealing with death and sickness is challenging on the outside, but when you're locked in a cage, it's just this like exponential feeling of grief. And, um, you know, I can't cry uh, because in prison, that's a form of weakness and you could be targeted for that. So I, I couldn't really show these emotions. So the way that I dealt with this challenging emotional feeling was I channeled it all into wanting to learn more about diabetes. Um, and so, you know, that, that's of course what I do now as an endocrinologist scientist. But how do you learn about diabetes and science when you're, when you're locked in a cage in prison? Um, you know, that's where this mentor who stepped into my life really was this other instrumental point in this aha moment where, you know, he wasn't a diabetes specialist, but he literally started learning a little bit about it just so he could help me teach me about it. And he started sending me, you know, scientific articles on diabetes. And as you mentioned, I read my first scientific article, you know, locked in a cage and, you know, under moonlight, there was, you know, we couldn't even, you know, we had limits on turning on our lights in the, in the cell. So I'm literally, you know, tucked behind. I, I have to wait for nights that have moonlight to, you know, go underneath my, um, you know, window and, and, and read these articles. And I mean, I would literally, one article, one 10, 12 page article, could last me months because I'd want to know every single word and it would take me sometimes weeks to figure out what a certain word meant. Um, so it was a way for me to really get out of prison despite my physical body being locked in prison. And, um, you know, that was the kind of, that, those two events were kind of the things that led me to say, I want to do something different when I get out. Man, that, that, that's, so, that's so profound on a lot of different levels. Um, and I think about, you know, to your point about early experiences in the education system and our why, you know, because there's a narrative of who and what black children are as they progress through um, traditional learning tracks. And there's, you know, a narrative around uh, the collective inferiority to white students. That's, that's a campaign that's pushed across the country that we know that is not true, but it's constantly put down the throats of black children. Um, and I think about your why um, in that moment, putting myself, trying to put myself in your shoes um, and that connection relationship to your father and, you know, the all the different neurons that are sparked like in your brain as you're reading why you're reading and your commitment to what you're reading about um there, there's such a strong anchor there uh and you talked about um this idea that you know in that moment your body may have been incarcerated but your mind is having this whole other experience so your your body's in a physical cell but your your mind is navigating the cells of your body. And I just yeah. thought that was such a profound statement, man. And if you could just break that down a little bit, um, because I think about the juxtaposition to a society where we may be able to navigate a little freer, but there's a lot of ways that our minds are in prison to this narrative that people want us to digest in our communities. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was literally as, you know, the the juxtaposition of, of the wording is, is, you know, interesting in terms of being, my body being locked in this prison cell, but my mind, it, I, I always, I always like, I'm a, I was around and remember, uh, you know, the magic school bus or whatnot. I don't know if y'all remember, but the magic school bus, like, I think there was an episode they went in the stomach and like, where the bus was, that's, that's literally how I felt. I, I, I felt like, I was in the, the human cell, just traveling around and learning about what they call organelles, which are just like compartments inside the cell. And there's like machinery and their factories. The human cell is just like super fascinating. And I was like, wow, this is this is where the factory is. And this is like, I'm literally going around the town of the human cell and learning about the different buildings and organizations within the human cell. And um, that was my way of getting out of, of prison because it, the human cell is almost like the the solar system. It's like infinitely, you know, once you learn about something else, you could dive deeper and learn about that. Then once you learn about, oh, this is the building where, you know, Tandem Ed is located. You go inside, then I could learn about each worker inside Tandem Ed. And then I could learn about each worker's father and mother. And, you know, it just never stops. And, that, and that's kind of what was, I mean, so I was in this place of, never stopping getting out of prison. And that's was just what I needed, you know, cause what was going on inside around me was, you know, craziness, you know, the, the, the institutionalization and things that go on inside prison. I was able to escape some of those things um, that, you know, unfortunately some of the people that I know were not able to, uh, you know, because of that, because of my exploring the human self. Thank you for talking so much about uh, just that juxtaposition of being incarcerated versus the freedom that education brought you. And I feel like that's really a great place to ask you to talk more about the Unlock Higher Ed yeah. Coalition and really about the importance of the Pell Ban, if you want to, and some of the other stuff your coalition might be working on next. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, so what I experienced is what Unlock Higher Ed hopes to have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people experience and you know this idea of unlocking higher education again to the to the same idea that it's not saying that education is you know it's not saying that a degree is success it's saying that you know doing what you feel you want to do is success and, you know, education doesn't necessarily mean getting a piece of paper. It means being able to educate yourself and put knowledge into your brain. Um, and, you know, that's the idea. My story, other stories similar to mine uh, have shown that being able to give people knowledge and ways to not be involved in the institutionalization and things that go on in prison is a successful way to help that person come out and be a productive member of society. And so it's not its not like, a, you know, the way that we argue it to the other side of the aisle um, is that, you know, we're actually not focused on helping the individual. We will help the individual, but what we're focused on helping is the community because the community at large will benefit from having this individual come out and have some tools in his or her tool belt that you know they can you know become productive members of society and see value in people, so they put value into others. Um, so uh, you know, with Unlock Higher Ed, 
our mission is to unlock education. And there's a lot of ways that education is locked up and Pell Grants being one of them. So, you know, giving people the opportunity to support them getting some type of certificate or college degree while still inside prison uh, is something that had been taken away for 25 years and is now back. Um, but, you know, saying it's back is uh, kind of ambiguous. Like, how is it back? How are we going to do this? How do we do it successfully? Those are some of the things that Unlock Higher Ed is, is focused on. And, you know, what we know needs to be done is that it needs to be done in an equitable sense. It needs to have this equity lens to it. And, you know, a lot of higher education is, you know, kind of a buzzword now in terms of, you know, doing that. But how do you do that? Uh, one of the ways that we think that it needs to be done is that, um, you know, we're in conversations with the Department of Education and the Secretary of the Department of Education and, and, and their team um, to get us at the table. You know, we you, you can't successfully do this without having currently and formerly incarcerated people sitting not just at the table to share their stories, but in leadership roles to help lead the efforts in making it this equitable, you know, to, to, to truly make it uh, the delivery and, and every aspect of it, you know, have an equitable, ask, you know, lens to it. Um, and there's, there's, there's really kind of a lot in terms of things that, that can be done and things that, that we're doing. Uh, but I would say that that is the biggest piece of it is that we are really working to make sure that we are at the table in leadership positions. Another big thing, um, I know that, uh, you know, uh, prior to 1994 and the Clinton crime bill, um, there was literally hundreds and hundreds of college and prison programs. Um, and after the 94 crime bill, it was basically supported by philanthropy and it dropped down to literally kind of a handful of uh, programs still offering it. Um, we're now about to move into the space where it is going to be hundreds again, potentially. Uh, and even with this uh, passing of Second Chance Pell before the full passing, um, they gave during the Obama administration, uh, there was about 60 and then there was another 60. So there was about 120 programs that are offering college and prison right now. We hope to see that, you know, in, increase by tenfold. Um, but what we, I, I actually, you know, helped Vera in their workshops that were training these 120 sites from this Pell, Second Chance Pell. There was only one out of the 120 that was an HBCU. And all of the programs, including the one by the HBCU, were run by white individuals. Um, and, and then on top of that, the majority were white women. Um, and so that needs to change. That's that equity aspect of it. And I know, you know, uh, my, uh, what, you know, some of the most incredible people that I love in this work, um, uh, Dr. Bahia Muhammad, uh, Dr. Aaron Corbett, and um, uh, uh, several other women, Black women have helped start uh, the Jami Sisterhood, which is working to kind of change that and, 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 and focusing on the importance of Black individuals and Black women in the space. But, you know, in addition to that, I think there needs to be formerly incarcerated people in, in, in the leadership positions again. So we're trying to, Unlock Higher Ed is trying to get people 
at the table of the Department of Education's rollout of Pell restoration. And then we're also trying to get folks, we're trying to get more leaders, black and brown, formerly incarcerated leaders to be running these programs because 80% of the prison population are people of color. So, you know, why are we having, why doesn't the force that's, you know, uh, the folks that are coming in to help these individuals restore their lives, why don't they look like the people that they're serving? Yeah, <clears throat> thanks Thanks for that. I, I, have a, I have a question. I, I, hope, I hope it doesn't take us uh, off track too much. Um, but I was just fascinated when you were talking about your learners about the cell uh, and all of the different facets, um, you know, seems infinite, the different factories, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious about, um, and, I'm, and I'm sure you learned so, I mean, you've learned so much more since that time. I'm curious about how your learning of that uh, design, that creation, um, you, you know, you said it's more robust than the solar, you know, as robust as the solar system. How did that sort of inform your, your worldview, uh, your view of, uh, uh, you know, creation, yeah. like, you know, like a broader sense of things. And then, you know, and then in turn, how did that then inform, you know, the way you show up to the work or how you approach the work? Yeah, right? yeah, that's a great question. If I if I hear correctly, one of the things that I can say to that is, and, and was, you know, a, a big part of many teenage viewpoints is, uh, coming of the understanding of that you're just a very small piece of the world. You know, I think as, you know, teenagers, we have a lot of hopes of big dreams and, and this idea of, uh, you know, being bigger than we really probably are. Um, so it did help me get this sense of the vastness of the world and, you know, how we really need to work together to really accomplish anything. Um, so I think I've taken that in my nonprofit and knowing that that's part of why we're a collective of Unlock Higher Ed is that, you know, the great work that we do can be amplified by connecting with others to really make our impact larger. So it, it, it's helped in that particular sense. Um, and then additionally, just, you know, the view of the world in terms of um, us being, you know, part of this larger collective, uh, you know, and, and connected globally even is is an understanding that, um, you know, that 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 helped me, you know, that that helped come to in the idea of, you know, understanding the self. I'm glad B uh, jumped on that, Matt, because to everything that you just said and the element of curiosity. So like, as you talked about being on that magic school bus and like roaming yeah. through the cells and understanding the story, like your ability to be curious, to question, yeah. to make connection, to, to association, to tell a story. Um, and a lot of our work is built around storytelling. Um, and so I think about, you know, earlier you talked about pathways you talked about um you talked about messages to your younger self um and, and and big respect to you for all the work that you're doing to uh interrupt the challenges barriers 
uh, those uh, intentional landmines that stand in, rated, uh, stand in the way of um, our incarcerated and formerly incarcerated brothers and sisters, because we know how many of our people sit in that space. Um, my, my wondering and question uh, for not only that space, but in community, because the other premise that we start from is a place of the assets of who we are as a people, right? Our story doesn't start with the deficits and the negative. So my wondering to you, um, that relationship and back to the brilliance that you possess all the way through and the narrative that was being pushed on you um, about you know, criminalizing you and dehumanizing you, um, what conversations are important to be had in our homes, in our communities that build from that brilliance that we are and not the deficit that society wants us to interpret and then become who we become like what 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 yeah. message, what conversation needs to sit there or does sit yeah there? uh great question i think um i mean it, it ties into i think also as uh you know black community leaders black parents um the, the I, we are the people also who I was speaking to when I when I have this idea of patience and that's you know what I respect and, and love my father so much for was that you know he really never threw me away you know in this idea of he was constantly in this idea of patience I, I have faith in you to come to realize your true potential um, we need to come at it from that perspective I think because uh, we've been conditioned to say you know when you interact with the police you got to interact this way because you may end up a body laying on the street which is a true reality right um but we've become conditioned to say you can't mess up because as black people we can't mess up instead of coming at it from you're a teenager you're young that i mean we were literally create why weren't we created to think a little bit better as teenagers? Like we just weren't created that way, you know? And white people uh, have the privilege of being able to make mistakes and then still become CEOs. Uh, but black people, we don't have that privilege. Um, so, you know, we need to, and, and, and so much so like in black families oftentimes, and you know, I, you know, um, I, I've seen it where, you know, the person is ostracized and, and kicked out of the family once they enter into the criminal legal system instead of, you know, this supportive nature being put around them to try to get their lives back together. Um, so, you know, we need to have a patience and then we just need to say that your time, your, your potential is still there. It's actually always been there. You're using it differently now as a teenager, but you know, that same, those same skills that you have will will still be valuable when you're an adult in your professional career. So I think we just need to be patient with our youth and let them know that their same talent and skills are valued and useful and, and worthy. Um, and just get that message of love, value, and worth across to them. And eventually, you know, with time, I think that that's just, I don't, that's an answer that I have not been able to figure out of why we were created to to think the way we do as teenagers and young adults. And then all of a sudden we would think differently. Um, but that is just the way our brains work. So, you know, stop, we need to stop denying that that's the way our brains work and really just nurture the person and show love and patience with them. 
I really appreciate kind of the thoughts you have around patience and love and appreciation. And I think um, I listened to the podcast you did um, at the Imperial College a couple of weeks ago. And I was really struck by the fact that you said that, and you've mentioned this prosecutor a few times, that you continue to invite them and the judge to major events in your life, yeah. uh, which I think is really a show of <laughs> of patience for sure and ability i mean it seems to me almost like you think that they still have the chance to change right or something like right that they still have the chance to really to turn around some of their perspectives on you know how they interact with you or how they interact with folks who they've you know done wrong in certain ways or incarcerated or you know put these judgments on and i'm kind of wondering if you could speak a little to that and then also even i you know i've heard a lot about the sort of progressive prosecutor movement right and i think some people think oh this might really you know also help and the change towards, you know, the criminal legal system, criminal justice system. And others feel like, no, you know, they're part of the system. They're not going to change. Yeah. This is going to change. Like, or, you know, I don't talk to cops. They're basically cops. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, yeah. trying to, I'm curious, particularly how you see that, especially with having, you know, continued yeah. to extend that hand. So great question. And I mean, I truly believe that it's never too late to do good. And I believe that is, that is the case for, you know, I have that belief about everyone. And so in a sense, you know, it was this idea that I was hopeful and in belief and, and you know, still yeah, maybe, you know, my the prosecutor and judge will pick up my book. I've sent it. Uh, I've actually sent copies to them as I, you know, as you mentioned, uh, I just got physical, as I just mentioned, I just got the physical copy. So uh, I have reached out to them at every major accomplishment in my life and this being another one I, I'm also doing so um, and maybe they will pick it up and see things differently that's a hope of mine um, and to the you know the progressive prosecutor movement um, and this uh, you know there's a couple of things about it I, I, I did something with Dr. Muhammad and, and, and Howard University where uh, there's a show there was a documentary called Philly DA it was a white male that is very progressive in Philly and, and making some big changes. And I mean, we need to shout, we, you know, shout out to him, right? But one of the things that I raised in that conversation is that out of the like, I think 3000 plus district attorneys is that there's only less than like 1% that are black individuals. You know, if we talk about being progressive, why is there still only 1% of black folks? Why is there still only such low percent of women? Why is there still so so much low percent of black women? Um, so we ain't progressive enough. Uh, so, you know, how do we make those changes? And, you know, furthermore, again, the same thing that I usually push is not only getting black and brown people and black and brown women into these positions, but people who've been through the system. Why are we not working towards that movement? Why, why aren't we progressive enough to be there? So it's really good what this guy in Philly is doing. Uh, but, you know, if you have that power, why not give it to somebody that looks like the people that they're serving? You have that power as that white individual to say, you know what, I'm actually going to appoint um, because these individuals have uh, the power to appoint the judges and prosecutors. Um, and so it's a lot of power we give into these elected positions of district attorneys. There's, there's you know, in my situation, it was very much, you know, the system needs to think differently on this. For instance, in my situation, it was this white lady that was pushing to send me away for life. She doesn't, I, I don't believe, again, because my belief in hope in individuals, I don't believe that she truly felt that I was this dangerous threat to society. But 
in order to push her career forward, she had to make that story. She had to, and I, I'm, I was a black kid from North St. Louis and I got caught up in this place called St. Charles. It's a primarily white area at the time. Um, and they were trying to stop the black individuals that are moving from North St. Louis to this particular area. So hanging black kids like me was the way to show their constituents like, I'm tough on crime. I'm not gonna let these black folks move into our neighborhoods and sell drugs. And so by sentencing me to life and sentencing people that look like me to those types of links of sentences, she can say to her constituents, I've been tough on crime. I've sentenced 500 years of incarceration to these black folks. Uh, you should vote for me. And that's crazy that that was her tactics to move forward in her career, but that's the way the system is set up. So she was, you know, potentially just doing what she could just to move forward in her career. Not that she really disliked this black kid from North St. Louis. Wow. I mean, that's, I feel like that speaks to a couple of different levels of the ways that we see, um, you know, white folks in different in a bunch of different places besides just the criminal legal system using black bodies, black suffering, black experiences, right, to build their careers. And I think, think even, you know, being academia, I think a lot of, about this a lot lately about the ways that, you know, academia is extractive or uses sort of like, you know, uh, black stories or trauma to sort of build their academic careers to publish or to write about, right? And they're very removed yeah. from those experiences, right? But at the end of the day, they're just trying to, you know, get tenure yeah. or make, you know, make their name. Yeah, that's that's a whole other, we'd be going for another hour, I think, on that topic, because uh, and it, it happens particularly to people like myself um, who get called in these, these white academics. I mean, and really academics in, in a whole, really, um, who haven't, you know, put proximity into the equation of actually going into prisons and going into these communities and working alongside, working with, sitting with uh, black individuals, but instead bring them into a focus group extract a bunch of information and knowledge and then write a $10 million grant. And that individual doesn't even know that their knowledge and ideas were worth $10 million and weren't even told that it was being used to get $10 million. It was like, come into, tell me a little bit about your life. Like, oh man, that's incredible. Like, I can't believe you, all this information extracted and nothing, you know, nothing given to those individuals to, to really push forward. And, you know, that needs to change. Like we need to put the power in the hands of those people in the community who are closest to the problem. You know, um, Matt, everything that you're saying resonates so much. Uh, I remember around the time of, you know, the, the unfortunate uh, and heinous occurrence of, you know, Mike Brown. Um, I remember reading an article, um, I think his name's Richard Rothstein, called The Making of Ferguson. And as you talked about that DA and, you know, her career um, and just how uh, Ferguson was created, um, the way that it looked racially um, as a suburb of St. Louis. Um, and then to your point, all the people that um, run and organize the way that life happens through education, through policing, through all those things. Um, but really looking at like local, state and federal laws that created the condition that exists. And that's not something, unfortunately, that's unique only to Ferguson. You know, that's really the nature of how our society is structured. Um, so your push and your advocacy is so important because 
all those things that we're talking about today, you know, rob black boys and, and girls of that innocence, that curiosity, um, you know, the needing to grow up much earlier than you should back to the teenage self. So man, just the phenomenal work that you're doing. Um, and we look forward to building with you more uh, in the future, but that just, that conversation resonates so much uh, around us controlling the narrative um, of who and what we truly are uh, and what sabotage is happening in our spaces. So just respect to yeah, you, man. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I would, I know we're getting close to closing out. So I just wanted to, you know, throw one more shout out to uh, uh, getting the book from Prison Cells to PhD. It's never too late to do good. Uh, you can find it on all platforms and bookstores, Amazon, Audible. Uh, it, it's me. I, I'm, you know, as the author, I, I read the audio version of it. Um, you can you can catch me on all social platforms at at prof underscore Andres. So at Professor Andres on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. Would love to continue this conversation with you. Um, and much appreciation to uh, you know inviting me to be on today. Thank you. We are so grateful to have you and we will be definitely tagging all of your all of your social media when we start pushing out this episode. And so I'll just, you know, close us out. Thank you for tuning in. Tap in with Tandem Ed Network at tandemed.com on IG and Twitter. Also follow hashtag Black Terms and hashtag Own Your Story. And until next time, live, learn, and lead on Black Terms. <laughs>